From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Vivian Williams, and for Tracy McRae. When you think of artificial intelligence, or AI, you might imagine what you see in the movies. But actually, you might already be using AI every day when you ask Siri or Alexa for help. Artificial intelligence is a fast-growing part of medicine, too. On today's program, we'll learn about AI in medicine and society from a Mayo Clinic expert. Some of the work that we've done in my lab on brain tumors has shown that with routine MRI, we can figure out the molecular markers of the tumor. And those are all what are really important for figuring out the type of targeted agents that are important for treating these new types of tumors. Also, the latest in brain surgery. And a new treatment option for Peyronie's disease. Right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Vivian Williams. Vivian, nice to see you. Thanks for filling in for Tracy. It is my pleasure to be here. I love it. There have been huge advances in the field of medicine in the past few decades. To name just a few, joint replacement, live donor liver transplants, DNA sequencing, MRI scans, stem cell transplants. And now there's AI, or artificial intelligence. Well, AI has already produced impressive technologies that have altered the healthcare landscape smarter and faster ways to diagnose, treat, and prevent diseases. And here to tell us about AI in radiology and how AI could affect society, meaning all of us, is Mayo Clinic radiologist Dr. Bradley Erickson. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks, Dr. Erickson. You know, I think when I look back over the past few decades and think about the different specialties, I can't think of any specialty that has had as many advances as radiology. I mean, you have CT scans, MRI scans, PET scans. There have been advances in all specialties, but particularly in radiology, don't you think? I mean, when I graduated from medical school, they were still reading x-rays. And then the CT and then the MRI. It's been amazing. Yeah, I agree. It's been a tremendous career to to be in that sort of a field where things are advancing so rapidly. Um, I think it partly goes that there are a lot of engineers that are in radiology that sort of feel goes with the specialty. And I think that that's been one factor that has driven a lot of innovation. I think also there are a lot of parallels between imaging and radiology and imaging that goes on in the much broader world. And therefore, we've been able to take advantage of a lot of those technologies. Um, You didn't mention ultrasound, but ultrasound is another tool that was developed in that same time frame as CT and MR. And actually, there's a lot of ping pong between ultrasound in radiology and ultrasound usage in the rest of the world. Um, In the case of x-ray. Think about how now we routinely get x-rayed or at least uh, that sort of technology when we go through uh, this the screeners for the airlines. Um, Magnetic resonance may not be something that you're aware that we use in everyday life, but uh, screening of drugs, for instance, gets done all the time in the pharmaceutical world. And there's so much interplay of radiological imaging and imaging done in the rest of the world that we've really been a big beneficiary of that. And I think that's probably one of the big factors that has been driving the, the amount of innovation we see. I think it's amazing. I mean, the whole idea of being able to see inside the body is a huge game changer because you don't have to cut inside the body if you're able to see in there. It's kind of like Star Trek. Well, it's true. And look at ultrasound. I mean, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, you could tell it was a baby. Uh, but now you can see all of the features and the heart and, and everything. It's incredible, the, the advances. Yeah, in fact, there are great new devices where you can plug it into your phone 
and see the ultrasound. And think of the impact then on the rest of the world. You know, in America, we're pretty well funded. So, you know, if we need to get a CT or MR, we can afford to do that. But in less resourceful countries, uh, say countries in Africa, for instance, ultrasound is an extremely popular technology because it's something that they can bring out anywhere that pretty much a person can walk. They plug it into their phone and they can see what's going on. So that's one of those technologies that really can be a game changer for the world, not just us in the U.S. Interesting question along those lines. Some of this technology, people, general people can use, and that can be a little bit tough because if I'm looking at something that I've scanned my leg or something and I see the inside, I don't really know the context, and that can be a little bit alarming and confusing to people. Yeah, that's very true. In fact, with this device, it is possible for people to buy an ultrasound-type imaging device for their phone. Um, And the company behind it is very cautious to warn people about what they may or may not see and what they may think they are seeing and what the impact is. So, So I think you're right. We have to be very careful about educating the public about what what is seen on an ultrasound image in particular, because um, ultrasound is something that uh, can be easy to think you see something when it's really not there, as well as to miss things that are really important. So ultrasound is perhaps one of the more dangerous technologies, but it's like any great tool, you know, the more powerful it is, it can be used for great good, can be used for potential potentially a lot of harm. Um, But I think uh, it's just one of those examples of how there's this explosion of new technology in medical imaging. What's the real difference between something being AI and just taking pictures of something? What makes it AI as opposed to just imaging? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, AI is kind of an umbrella term, and, and the more precise term now is either machine learning and even more precisely deep learning. And it's called deep learning because um, we apply many, many layers of computation to understand what is going on. And so we're not developing new imaging techniques. It's instead that we have done a better job of teaching a computer to look at many examples and figure out the pattern. So that's one key thing is you've got to have lots of examples in order for the computer to learn from you. So that's why the rare cases, I think it it will still take a human a long time to figure those cases out. Um, But the, the other thing that's happened is because there are so many layers of computation, they had to figure out a new computational model. And, and the cool thing, actually, is that if there are gamers out there, you probably know what a GPU is or graphics processing unit. Um, this is the card that you put in your computer to make your games go really fast. Well, some clever people figured out how to map the computations for deep learning onto a GPU. And so suddenly they were getting a thousand times more performance for a few hundred dollars. And that sort of thousand-fold improvement in computation is what made this feasible. Wow. So we still, the humans are still controlling it, so we don't have to worry that the machine's suddenly going to take over <laughs> Not the yet. operating room or whatever. Not yet. <laughs> oh, it is pretty deep. Wow. All right, should we get to the topic at hand? Yes, artificial please. intelligence radiology in radiology. Tell us about that. Yeah, so you know the, it, the there have been a tremendous advances in again in the general public. Uh, we've all seen things like self-driving cars. The fact that when you post a picture on Facebook or Google, it will recognize it's you, and also it can figure out if you're happy or sad, and it can figure out uh, 
what what's going on with with you there are now psychiatric interpretation programs that are available and so the same technology that they can use to recognize what's going on in a photograph can be used to understand what's going on with a medical image and the really impressive thing is that the companies behind those technologies like Google and Facebook and Apple have actually made those algorithms freely available and so all the billions of dollars that they've invested in making those AI algorithms work well are freely available to us researchers at medical. And that's really been a tremendous boon to us because now we can take those, those sorts of algorithms. We have to sometimes do minor tweaks to make them fit with medical images that are somewhat different than photographs. But we can start to apply them to have it recognize whether or not a disease is present what type of disease it might be. We can also use it to measure the size of things. Some, for some diseases, the size of an organ is important. And so that, that has really been the big boon for AI in medicine is the fact that AI in lots of other industries has really worked quite well. Give us an example of uh, something that the, the uh, listeners might understand where they might be experiencing it when they go to see the doctor. So uh, one example that we've started to put into clinical practice is that we can now have the computer automatically find the organs of the abdomen. So, for instance, it can automatically find the liver, spleen, kidneys. Um, one example now is it turns out we, we've always known the so-called apple versus pear shape, you know, and the distribution of fat is probably more important than the amount of fat. Well, anytime you get a CT scan, you should be able to measure that, but to actually measure it by hand is a lot of work. So we've developed an algorithm that will automatically measure the amount of peritoneal fat or visceral fat versus the amount of subcutaneous fat, as well as the amount of muscle that you have in the abdominal wall. And this has been shown to be an important predictor of how robust somebody is, whether they're going to make it through major surgery, when they perhaps have a cancer diagnosed, how likely are they to survive the the ill effects of the treatments that sometimes go along with cancer. So we think that this body composition is going to be a big thing that will become pretty commonplace now in medical imaging. Do you think that AI will allow us, you, to make diagnoses that we've never heard of before? I do think that. New diseases? Yeah, I do. Um, Well, maybe not new diseases, but we will be able to diagnose diseases that we weren't able to do with imaging before. So, for instance, in the past, um, diseases like dementia, we really didn't have a good handle on. And some work done here at Mayo as well as other places have indicated that the volumes of portions of the brain are predictors of different types of dementia. Um, Some of the work that we've done in my lab on brain tumors has shown that with routine MRI, we can figure out the molecular markers of the tumor. So we can figure out the chromosomal abnormalities, the the genetic mutations, um, epigenetic factors, and those are all what are really important for figuring out the type of precision medicine, the the, uh, targeted agents that are important for treating these new types of tumors. And in other types of things, uh, lung cancer, people have shown that with CT images and artificial intelligence, you can figure out things like EGFR mutations. Eat that. What is that? <laughs> uh, uh, epidermal growth factor releasing. Oh, so it, it, it's that, a, would, that would help direct your treatment. In other yeah, it, it indicates whether some of these targeted agents are useful or not. Do you ever worry that you're going to teach a computer so much that they're going to take your job? That is a common question. I think it's going to let us do a lot more focus on the challenging cases because 
we don't get enough of the challenging cases to train an AI algorithm well. It instead will be very good at the screening routine exams that most radiologists tend to find more boring. So I suspect that what's going to happen is that the AI is going to do the routine common exams quickly, efficiently, and usually pretty well, and it will kick out the ones that need a little bit of extra attention. So you've got a job for at least five years, we think. At, at least five years, I hope. <laughs> Pretty okay. amazing stuff. Yeah. Our guest is Mayo Clinic radiologist Dr. Bradley Erickson. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the effect AI could have on our society as a whole, who might lose their job, and why you need to get prepared for the next thing. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Jives. And I'm Vivian Williams. Our guest is an expert in radiology and artificial intelligence. We've had an amazing discussion about what's going on in the field of uh, radiology with artificial intelligence. And now we want to talk about more broadly how it might affect society. And so some are predicting that AI could replace a lot of people and a lot of jobs. So do we need to worry about this? Um, I think we have to be thoughtful about it. Um, I think if you look back on 100 years in our society, we've already had a lot of replacement of jobs, right? A century ago, I think the figure is something like 80% of the population was farmers. Those are pretty rare today. And why is it? It's because with machinery, they were able to become much more productive and we needed a lot less workers. Uh, Similarly, we've had a lot more mechanization of factories, and now there are more and more robotics going into factories. And so some of those types of jobs have have been replaced. Um, in the 70s and 80s, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, there was a program called VisiCalc, which was the predecessor of Microsoft Excel. And the prediction when that program came out was that it would put all the accountants out of a job. And it actually, it turns out there are more accountants today than back then, and they're paid more. And why is it? it it's because it replaced a lot of the the bookkeeping, the adding numbers, subtracting numbers function that Excel does. And now accountants are more thinking about, should we expense this cost? Should we operationalize it? So it has moved them up the ladder in terms of the intellectual quality of the output that they do. Um, I think it probably makes their job a lot more interesting and uh, it makes them a lot more productive. So in terms of specific jobs, who do you think needs to worry and, and who probably doesn't need to worry? So people generally say that the type of job that needs to be cautious are ones where there's a clear pattern to it. So I even mentioned in the case of radiology that if we can see a very typical pattern that we do screening exams, that that's probably something can be replaced. So one example, for instance, is people who drive vehicles for their job. That's something that probably, at least over the, the long distances, they can map that out, and that's very repetitive. On the other hand, getting the last block, figuring out how you're going to maneuver the truck up to the loading dock, that's something that you have to watch out for the fact that there's a piece of you know equipment in the way or there's a person in the way, and that last few blocks is something that probably still needs a human. So if there's a definite pattern to it, it can be replaced. Um, I think more generally what that means is that, okay, what are the jobs then that can't be replaced? So there are probably a couple of categories. One is anytime you need the human touch interaction, right? So we think about that with physicians. I think nurses are probably going to be challenging to replace. They often do a better job with human touch than some of us physicians do. 
Um, people talk about creatives being the ones that can't be replaced, although there's actually some really interesting work. They've taught computers to write music, to write books. Jeez. And actually, it has uh, really done an excellent job of creating those music, th- those types of things like music. Um, and it turns out that only expert musicians can tell the difference between music composed by, for instance, Bach and a algorithm that was trained on what Bach music sounds like. Hmm. And they describe it that the computer-generated music is kind of um, doesn't have a direction to it, whereas humans tend to say, this is really what I'm writing this music for. I want to get to this point. So, And similarly in artwork, that they can create artwork that looks all the world like Van Gogh, but it doesn't have that special flair. And an expert can tell the difference, but... At least I can't tell the difference. And so I think that's where, you know, creatives have to be really an expert in what they do to to have a safe job. So I think that when it comes to, for instance, you're talking about driving and GPS and things like that, it's changing how we think. Because I don't have to think about how I get places anymore. <laughs> so it'll be inter- interesting to see how we evolve alongside of the technologies that's doing things for us. And, and what about uh, people who may have a pattern-type job? How, what, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? How should they try to get prepared? So I think this is where we're increasingly in a society of lifelong learning, right? It used to be that when at least my parents came out of college, they stayed in their job for life. And now we're starting to see a, an economy now where people are a little bit more episodic in their job. And I think it's critical that people continue to think about what they want to do next and that they continually keep their mind active and learn what's going on in the world. Um, I'm thinking, you know, another job category that's popular is to be strategic. So like you described how your GPS can figure out how to get there in the shortest distance. But if you want to be strategic, you may say, well, you know, really, I want to go this way because I wanted to look at this new place over here, right? So so thinking about what that bigger picture is, or even in a pattern job, right, you, you don't want to keep thinking about, well, I just need to insert, you know, this tab A into slot B or something like that. But why am I making this product to begin with? And how can I make that product better? What does the consumer need? And so moving yourself up to a more strategic thinker about why am I doing this rather than just what am I doing is probably another thing that will help you keep your job safe. Keep learning and think strategically. Yes. All right. AI is not only changing the practice of radiology and medicine, it's going to affect all of us sooner or later. And one of the best ways to get prepared, especially if you're young, and especially if you have a job that you think a computer could do, a pattern-type job, you should practice lifelong learning. AI is truly changing the world. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic radiologist, Dr. Brad Erickson. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about advances in neurosurgery. And a new treatment option for Peyronie's disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Vivian Williams and for Tracy McRae. So today we're going to talk about Peyronie's disease. And I think the correct pronunciation is actually Peyronie's disease. I think he was a uh, French surgeon, in case you're interested, in the way back in the 1700s. Well, Peyronie's disease is the development of fibrous scar tissue inside the penis that causes curved, painful erections. Now, having a curved erection isn't necessarily a cause for concern. But 
Peyronie's disease can cause a significant bend or significant pain in some men. And that can prevent you from having sex or might make it difficult to get or maintain an erection. And if you have it, Peyronie's disease can be a source of stress and anxiety. And here to discuss the problem, including treatment options, is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Matthew Ziegelman. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Dr. Ziegelman, nice to have you here. And a difficult subject, to say Mm -hmm. the least. I watch a lot of Golf Channel, and I got to tell you, I've been seeing a lot of ads for Peroni's yeah. disease. And why now? Is it because this is a new medication? Really what's put Peroni's on the map as far as uh, bringing it to the forefront is this medication known as Zyaflex. It's a collagenase that was FDA approved in 2013. And because there's you know an interest from industry and in getting the uh, information out to consumers about this medication... It's come to the forefront, and I think that's great. It brings a lot of men in the door. This isn't the right treatment for everyone, but at least it lets men know, hey, this is a condition that's common, and there's things that we can do about this. You just need to go to your healthcare provider to learn more. So abnormal curvature of, of the penis, how, uh, how many men are affected by this disease? So it's actually a lot more common than you would imagine, and I think a lot of this has to do with that men aren't, always talking about it. But the studies that look at prevalence suggest that up to anywhere from 3 to 9% of men have symptoms of Peyronie's. Now, it's probably more on the order of 1 to 3% of men who actually go in to get evaluated for Peyronie's disease. There are certain risk factors that we think of that may increase your risk of developing this type of condition, specifically a history of prostatectomy, Diabetes. So, you, if you've had your prostate out, you're you're at risk for this. It is the there is a higher incidence of or a higher prevalence of Peyronie's disease in men who've had a history of radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer. Okay, and what other risk factors? So there. So essentially, other than prostate cancer, we know diabetic men seem to be at an increased risk. Men with erectile dysfunction seem to be at an increased risk. There's a condition known as Dupuytren's contracture which is quite common, and a lot of men seek uh, consultation for this because it in fact impacts their ability to use their hands as effectively. Explain what that is. Yeah. It, that is scar tissue that develops in the flex, I believe it's the flexor tendons That's of the exactly hand. exactly right, yeah. So this is a condition, basically I describe this to patients as a wound healing disorder isolated to the penis. Men, we all probably sustain some extra pressures on the penis, oftentimes during sexual activity, but it can be trauma from other causes, accidents, things of that nature. But in most men, they, their body responds to that trauma and heals the tissue normally. And men who we think have a genetic predisposition to develop exuberant scar tissue, their body forms a scar and then doesn't remodel the scar. And the same thing we presume happens in the setting of Dupuytren's contracture as well. So uh, if you've had trauma uh, to your penis uh, when you were younger, can it potentially develop later, even though the trauma was ancient? Potentially. Only about one of five men that we see in the clinic recalls a specific traumatic event to the groin or to the penis. Most men don't, but we think it's probably more in something such as micro trauma. So essentially extra pressures that may not register as true trauma to the penis, uh, but result in some injury. How does the medication work? So if you're having a scar tissue, Mm -hmm. how would medication, does it stop the scar tissue from forming over time or how does it work? So they've done a lot of research 
understanding fibrosis, understanding fibrosis meaning disorders. scar, yeah. scar, mm-hmm. correct. And the the medications that we've historically used, a lot of them being oral medications, and now more recently injections, they've all been medications that mechanistically alter the scar tissue. They remodel the scar tissue. They try to induce the body to change that scar tissue into a more normal type of tissue. The most recent medication on the market, this collagenase or Zyaflex, which came about in 2013, actually break, it's an enzymatic medication that breaks down collagen, which is one of the most common components of scar in Peyronie's, with the hopes that your body then brings in more quote-unquote normal tissue to, to fill in the, the gaps where this medication has worked. So you've got oral medications that historically have not been that effective. Correct. You've got injections, and is this one injection or multiple? So if we're talking about, well, any of the injections, I mean, has, they've looked at a variety of agents. The ones that have really stood the test of time are three. There's something called interferon. There's a medication called verapamil, and then most recently this collagenase Zyaflex. And Surgery is an excellent option for Peyronie's, but there's a lot of men who either aren't at a point where surgery is indicated quite yet, and that gets into a little bit of the nuance of how we treat this, but also there's a lot of men who desire a treatment other than surgery. And it's wonderful that we have tools in our armamentarium that allow us to, to do this for to All right, men. Yeah. and tell us about the one that I know you are particularly interested in, and that's traction. Yes. So penile traction. Actually, I believe this was originally studied in the setting of Dupuytren's contractures as well. That's the scarring of the hand, palm Correct. of the hand. Correct. Yeah. So essentially what this is is applying a mechanical force to the scar tissue, which induces at a cellular level changes that remodel that scar tissue. It's a process known as mechanotransduction. It's been studied in Peyronie's disease and other fibrosis disease processes. And essentially, this device allows you, these various devices allow you to apply traction forces in a sustained manner to the scar tissue in Peyronie's disease, scar tissue on the penis, that have been shown to improve curvature, uh, penile length, which is a big concern for a lot of men with Peyronie's, and possibly even some enhancement of girth or loss of the girth within the penile shaft. Every day, how many hours? Yep. And so it depends on the type of device and what study you looked at. Historically, until very recently, all of the studies that showed benefit for men with respect to either curvature or length recovery suggested you needed to wear these devices often three to even nine hours most days of the week for a period of up to six months to see benefits. Now, recently, there was a device that was invented or created called the Restorex device. Uh, It was actually created here at Mayo Clinic by one of my former colleagues in conjunction with some of our engineering colleagues. And uh, now this device, we did recently performed a randomized controlled trial where we randomized men to use traction for 30 to 90 minutes per day versus a control group that we just followed with no traction. And using the device for 30 to 90 minutes, we saw significant improvements in curvature and penile length. So still having to wear a mechanical device for up to an hour and a half a day, but significantly less time and a higher compliance rate if you compare that to men who needed to wear these devices for three to nine hours per day. It seems like a great option for people who don't want to have injections or take medication because even though it's a brace, it's non-invasive. Correct. And we often use this 
in conjunction with our other therapies, ah. whether it's the intralesional therapy, so the injections of medications, whether it's in the recovery period after surgery, uh, or leading up to those interventions to try to optimize outcomes. So it's, right. an, it's an excellent treatment option. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Matthew Ziegelman. Thanks for being here. We're going to take a short break. And still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the latest advances in neurosurgery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Vivian Williams. Vivian, how many times have you heard someone say, it's not brain surgery? Well, most of the time it's not, but today it is. Neurosurgeon Dr. Alfredo Quinones is joining us from telephone from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Now he's better known as Dr. Q. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, Vivian, for having me. It's quite a pleasure for me to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us. So tell us a little bit about your background. I think our audience would be interested. Well, thank Well, first of all, I started being a um, someone who worked with his hands <laughs> and used his brain to be able to pick the most amazing tomatoes in the farms of California. Oh, <laughs> what is amazing! I still continue to work with my hands, and now I just happen to try to pick some of the most complex brain tumors and some of the most inspiring people in the world. So, and I continue to use my brain to do so. But uh, I always joke around that about my background. I came from very humble beginnings. I had the pleasure of training at great places like uh, San Francisco, Harvard, and then eventually ended up here at the Mayo Clinic as a Mayo professor. So you reached reach the pinnacle later in life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, t- tell, you know, you're a busy researcher and you've got a busy clinical practice. How do you manage your time, clinical practice and lab? Well, Tom, I think that the most important thing is that everything revolves around the patient. And I think that that's the most important thing. So for me, it's not that difficult to conceive and begin uh, a number of years ago to realize that the operating room was an extraordinary uh, extension of our laboratory. So I began to collect tissue, I began to formulate hypotheses, I began to get grants from the National Institute of Health. So nowadays, every time I go into the operating room, instead of letting tissue go out and be wasted, I collect it and I ask questions and I continue to advance science. So managing my time between the operating room, my laboratory, and now integrating my administrative responsibility as the chair of the department has been an organic process. And that's how I've been able to do it. And the most important thing, Tom and Vivian, is that I surround myself by people who are much brighter than I am. That's well, the key. Your time management <laughs> skills sound like they're pretty good. I think so, too. It sounds like a living laboratory, an extension of the lab in the OR. Now, one thing that people don't know a lot, I think, of when when it comes to neurosurgery is that sometimes you're awake. The patients are awake during the process. Tell me about that. Isn't that amazing? I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, I have to disconnect tumors, and sometimes these tumors are near speech areas, not only where you understand speech, but also where you produce speech, which is two different regions of the brain. And then sometimes these tumors are also connected in parts of the brain that will be able to allow you to move your hand, your leg, your face. So I have to be able to go in, 
And some of these tumors, they don't look like anything, just normal brain. And the MRI, they may look different, but when you open the brain, you're like, oh my gosh, what part can I take or not take? Wow. So I go ahead and map the brain, and I ask the patient, move your hand, move your face, say this, say that, play this music, you know, read that book, you know, tell me this poem, and so on and so forth. And then as I'm stimulating, I'm suddenly beginning to realize, aha, this part of the brain I should not touch, this other part I can take out, and then I begin to make progress in what we do together. So it's essential to have an amazing patient. It's essential to have an amazing neurology team in there and also a neurophysiology and anesthesiologist. So it's a multidisciplinary team. So the only way that I can do it is being at a place like Mayo where you have the best of the best in every single one of those disciplines. But there's not too many parts of the brain that you can take out without causing a functional deficit, are there? Absolutely right. You know, it's amazing. And I think that part of it is evolution. Sometimes when these brain lesions begin to grow, our function begins to move away. You know, it begins to move away. But sometimes it just doesn't move fast enough. So that's why you have to map the brain and try to take those new tumors that have grown you know, and it is amazing sometimes how our brains, we used to think that the brain was not plastic, Tom and Vivian, but now we're beginning to realize that we have a lot more plasticity and ability to learn new things than what we thought we did. With the patient awake, isn't that painful? You know, it's very interesting. So first of all, but our neuroanesthesia team, which is, by the way, the best in the world here at the Mayo Clinic, they do an amazing job. Before the patient goes into the operating room, they use a state-of-the-art technology, including ultrasound, by the way, to be able to find exactly where those nerves that will give you pain are, and they selectively block them. Imagine when you go to the dentist, if they didn't block those nerves, it's the same thing in the brain. All the sensors are in the surface, and they very selectively block them. And then, of course, they give them a little bit of medication to relax. That way, when they go into the operating room, those patients are just amazing. It's amazing what they can do. So the pain is really non-existent. It's more of a psychological distress and knowing. That's why you really have to have the best psychologists, the best anesthesiologists there in the operating room with our patients. I had the pleasure of, of speaking to a patient who went through a wig brain surgery, and they said, I was like, isn't that scary? And they're like, yeah, at first it was, but it was so interesting. And so they were kind of intrigued by the whole thing. So, wow, is all I can say. They so, are. They are. I yeah. tell you, my patients, suddenly they want to see videos. They want to, Sometimes they ask me, doctor, did you put the camera in my brain so I can see my own surgery? Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? It's amazing. That's and you say we couldn't find it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about what's new in brain surgery. What are you able to do better than you used to be able to do? Well, there's no question that what we've been able to do just on the, 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 the topics that we just touched upon, brain surgery awake. So now we know that we can use a state-of-the-art technology, you know, artificial intelligence, brain mapping with new machines that allow us to not only monitor at the time that we're stimulating the brain, we can know if the patient is having a seizure or not because as you can imagine, we are putting electricity in the brain and sometimes this brain can get a little bit hyper excitable. So now we have the ability with new devices that by the way, we have invented here at the Mayo Clinic to be able to monitor. In addition to that, we are beginning to use more of what we call you know, uh, robotic surgery. In the brain, we are at the early stages, mainly on those cases where we are uh, doing a lot of bone work. But in the spine, it's a reality already. Sometimes when I go and I have to take tumors in the spine to be able to open or if we have to fuse 
the spine bone, we can put a lot of those little screws and these little uh, sort of metal things with robots. And that is, to me, is just amazing. So all the way from brain mapping, robotic surgery, artificial intelligence, and new devices that we are inventing, we are making surgery better and safer here at the Mayo Clinic. Absolutely incredible with all the new techniques you have. Let's talk about new cancer therapies. And, and I'm particularly interested in your collaboration with Yale University that uh, you were studying how cancer spreads or metastasizes. Well, it's amazing. So there's a you know, it's, it's a, based on a recent paper that we published in Nature. It's a collaborative work, Tom, that has been going on for 10-plus years. This, this started before I came to Mayo with my colleagues, but now here between Mayo and Yale. By the way, the, my colleagues at Yale, they used to be at my prior institution. Now we're separated, but we continue to build bridges. And, and of course, the relationship between Yale and Mayo is, is very, very strong in many directions. And this particular work, you're talking about a paper that we recently published in Nature, which we actually elucidated the mechanism, the molecular engine, that one particular protein is called YAP, Y-A-P, that it stands for Yes, associated protein, which is, by the way, is part of another pathway. It's called the HIPPO pathway. And people say HIPPO, like a hippopotamus. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, it is, by the way, because when it is regulated in flies, when you look at them, they look like hippopotamus. Their eyes get huge. So oh, that wow. means that this protein is important in organ size. And as you can imagine, in brain cancer, the growth and the ability of cells to migrate is regulated by this particular protein. So this is one of the latest discoveries that we elucidated in brain cancer, and we realized that this protein is not only important, but we also have tools that allow us to block, at least in our animal models, the ability of these cells to migrate, and subsequently, we have a deep impact on brain cancer survival in our avatars, in our animal models. Incredible. It is incredible. And tell us about how you're using fat to fight brain cancer. Well, it's the same deal, serendipity, you know, is always luck or always favors those who are prepared. It was an observation where we realized that in fat in our own body, there are these small little stem cells. And we figure, how do I put the brakes on cancer? It has to do with cancer spread. And I said, I can get the drugs there. But it turns out our own body has cellular mechanisms. Other cells try to fight disease. And we realize that the cells in fat, stem cells particularly, have this amazing ability to migrate and chase cancer cells. And then we figure out the way in how to engineer these little, you know, stem cells from fat as Trojan horses to be able to carry, you know, signals that we put in there with nanoparticles, by the way, and then they go in and chase these cancer cells and they kill them. And that's based on two papers that we published last year in which we show also that these stem cells from fat, when we engineer with nanoparticles, they can actually have a significant impact on uh, cancer survival in animals, not yet in humans. I'm hoping that in the next five to 10 years out of the Mayo Clinic, we'll be able to implement that technology for our patients. Boy, we hope so, too. That's nothing short of exciting. Dr. Q, thanks so much for being with us. Well, Tom and Vivian, thank you, and thank you to your audience as well. What a great pleasure. And that's our program for this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.